Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. by making kind of an exciting announcement to you guys uh, as it relates to construction. We've been obviously working for many months and, and looking at timelines and, and working out all sorts of details to finish everything up. And I want you to know that officially we can say today, April the 14th is going to be our first Sunday back in the new worship center, which means that's a week before Easter, which means we'll do Easter here at the church. We're very excited about That was one of our goals. One of the things we, we really wanted to uh, make sure we could get in before Easter uh, the building is going to be ready really before the 14th of April, but we wanted a few weeks to test everything out. We wanted to make sure everything worked and the lights worked and the sound worked, and so we'll have a couple of weeks of kind of trial and error running through things and testing it out, and then on April the 14th, uh, we'll have our first uh, new service in the worship center. Very exciting for us, all the Lord's doing. I- I'm going to con- encourage you to continue to give if you're giving. Uh, remember, anything we give before that date of moving, 20% additional comes from Callaway. So if you give $100, Callaway will give us 20 That's a huge amount of money. So continue to pray, continue to give, and uh, be part of that process, okay? All right, let me pray for us. We're going to begin this morning. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in this church, Father. We thank you for the growth that we see, Father. We thank you for the excitement in the hearts of our people, Lord, the desire to go and, and uh, reach those around us in our community and in our world, Father. We're just so thankful. That you're at work in our hearts, Lord. I, I pray now as we turn our attention, still in a mode of worship, Father, but we turn our attention to your word. As we open up this truth, Father, you would speak to us. Lord, help us to understand that your word is, is foundational for us, Father. It's absolute truth. It guides our lives. It's a, uh, Lord, a truth upon which we can build all other things. And so I pray you would just speak to us this morning. Encourage us, challenge us, convict us, Father. May we be transformed, as always, more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We are continuing our study this morning in the gospel of Mark, a study about Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry. And we've seen some themes already begin to develop, themes that we'll continue to see. uh, The themes such as the excitement of the people around Christ, his popularity is growing More and more people want to see him. They want to be around him. They want to hear his teaching. He teaches with authority, unlike anything they've ever heard before. So you've kind of got this theme of of the the, uh, fame of Christ, the popularity of Christ increasing. Along with that theme comes another theme. We've seen bits and pieces of it just a little bit, but it's going to kind of rear its ugly head a little bit more this morning, and we're going to kind of put it into perspective of what's going on. Another theme that we've seen up to this point is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, are not real pleased at what Jesus is doing. 
So the more his popularity increases, the more people that want to see him and hear from him, the more the Pharisees begin to question him, begin to wonder what's really going on. You remember in our story last week, we studied about Jesus calling Levi and, and Peter and the disciples and then dining with the sinners and with the outcasts. And the Pharisees took note and wondered what Jesus was doing and began to question his motives Question what he was doing. Now, here's the key to what's going to happen this morning. You need to understand this. very important. The key to what's taking place with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and what Jesus is doing is very simply the old versus the new. The Pharisees have an Old Testament mindset. They have a law mindset. They have a legalism mindset. Very different than Christ who brings love and joy and grace. And so there's this kind of competition between the old the teachers of the law, and the new Jesus. And so everything we're going to see this morning is this idea of old versus new. Jesus has entered the picture. Everything is changing. The religious leaders are uncomfortable with it. They don't like it. They want to change it. So let's jump right in. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is a carryover. Mark has taught us already that Jesus is dining with Levi. He's dining with the the, the, uh, sinners and the outcasts. This is still in that context in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Right? They're questioning Jesus again. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come... When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Now, Jesus is speaking of himself. He's the bridegroom. He's the groom. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's stop there. I want to make a point, kind of draw out a truth, and then I want to kind of build on this foundation for the next few minutes. Truth number one. Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom. The whole purpose of what's going on here, all that Jesus is doing This teaching, the problem with the Pharisees, this idea of fasting. We're going to talk about fasting in a minute. The whole issue is that Jesus is ushering in the new. Right? The Pharisees are kind of stuck in the past. They're stuck in the Old Testament, as we're going to see. Jesus is bringing in something new to replace something old. Now, I want to kind of think through for a few minutes this idea about fasting because it comes up in this context. Jesus is questioned about it. The Pharisees are fasting. The disciples of John are fasting. What is fasting? Let me define it for you in case you don't know. Fasting is when you voluntarily abstain from food and drink for a period of time for the purpose of growing closer to God. Fasting, very simply, is when you don't eat and you don't eat for a period of time so that you can grow in your walk with Christ. Now, the Old Testament is, is filled with the idea of fasting. In fact, if you were to kind of go to Strong's Concordance, some of you guys may use that, and you can do it online now, or you do a kind of Bible word search, and you just looked up the word fasting, you would find in the Old Testament there are numerous examples of fasting. David fasted. Nehemiah fasted. Daniel fasted. The people of Nineveh fasted when Jonah proclaimed judgment upon them. The first century church is going to fast. Jesus himself, in the 40 days in the wilderness, the Bible tells us that he fasted. But here's something we need to understand. This is a comparison of the old versus new. 
In the Old Testament, fasting oftentimes was done because people were sad, they were fearful, they were in distress. And so we read examples of that, like 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, the Bible says. He was a king. And he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast through all Judah. Judges chapter 20, verse 26. And all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. There they sat before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. Nehemiah, who was the wall builder, remember he heard that the wall of Jerusalem had been torn down. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Right? The Old Testament fasting is about mourning. It's about sadness oftentimes. It's about fear. And here's what's important. By the time the first century had rolled around, the religious leaders fasted basically because it was just their routine. It was their tradition to do. They just kind of did it because they were supposed to do it. In fact, they'd kind of taken certain days of the week, two days out of every week, and they would fast. It wasn't really spiritual for them. It wasn't thinking about the things of the Lord. It just kind of wrote, right, we got to do it, so we're going to do it. We're not really excited about it. We're going to do it anyway. Jesus enters the picture, and I want you to notice what he does now in verse 19 because it's interesting. Mark chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? All of a sudden, Jesus is talking about weddings. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Now, we understand weddings. We know what they mean. We get it. But the whole point of a wedding is celebration, isn't it? It's a time of excitement. It's a time of joy. In fact, in the first century, if you went to a Jewish wedding, it typically lasted about a week. I have the opportunity to, to go different places with mission trips and, and to travel to different parts of the world. And anytime I get a chance to visit during one, of these, uh, during one of these trips a wedding or a funeral, I do it because I just like to experience I've been to a wedding in Africa. I've been to one in India. I've been to one in Romania. They're all very different, but you know what they all have in common? They're celebrations. In fact, if you go to a wedding in India, this is true. This is true. You should, you should go to a wedding in India if you ever get the chance. Here's the way it starts. We go somewhere, like if we're going to get married here, we go somewhere in the city, miles from here. I'm not joking. Miles from here. We would all meet in the street. If I were the groom, I would rent. This is what they do in India. They rent these massive speakers. I mean massive speakers on the back of this wagon, this big cart. And so there's these carts that are pulled by a truck with thousands of watts or amps or however they measure speakers. And they have these people that walk around with these big tall light poles and the lights flash and the music thumps. And we, we follow that thing miles through the city. That's what they do. They just wind through the city playing music, dancing. It's like a big mosh pit walking through the city, dancing and celebrating until we get to the place of the wedding. Then we have the ceremony. Why do they do that? It's a time of celebration. We, we like to celebrate weddings. They're exciting for us. Jesus, here, here's the truth now. Here's the point, what you need to get. Like the Fer- to the Pharisees, fasting can become kind of dull. And we're going to do it because we have to do it. It's just, it's just tradition. We don't really like it. We're going to stand in front of people and let them know we're fasting. And we're going to kind of make our faces look bad. And so people understand this is a, a, a struggle and it's harsh. And we don't really want to have to go through it. Jesus says, listen, fasting isn't really about that. Fasting is about joy, right? Celebration. Like when we fast now, we ought to fast with this idea of celebration and excitement and joy for what the Lord is doing. 
But the people of the Old Testament, the, the Pharisees especially, didn't understand that. They didn't understand it was about the heart. They thought it was about something they had to do. Now, Jesus is comparing old versus new. And this is going to get him in trouble. We're going we're to kind of ramp up to this towards the end of this text in a few minutes. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, listen, it's, it's not the way you used to do it. It's not really about legalism and that you have to do it. You should want to do it. You should celebrate Christ celebrate your walk with him. And when you fast, you should have that as a time of joy and hope and excitement in your life. Now, now Jesus says in verse 20, I want you to look at this. Jesus is not against the idea of fasting. Look what he says. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day, right? In other words, Jesus says, listen, while I'm with them, they're going to celebrate me. When I'm gone, they're going to celebrate that I was here and they're going to do it through fasting. Now, I didn't want to miss the opportunity. This, is an inter- this has been an interesting study for me, this section of Mark, because it appears on the surface to be about fasting. In a minute, it's going to appear to be about the Sabbath. And it is about both of those. But what it's really about is Jesus ushering in the new, telling to these people the old is going away. We're changing the way we, we, we used to do it. We're now going to see things through grace and through love and through mercy. But I didn't want to miss the opportunity because Jesus speaks about fasting to teach just for a couple of minutes what fasting is, encourage you to fast, kind of show you what the Bible says about fasting. So let me just give you a couple of quick things before we move on here to help you understand fasting. Fasting is, is linked every single time in Scripture with our growth in Christ. Right, So I'm going to give you four things. We have them on the screen, kind of steps to fasting. So if you've never fasted, you ought to go and read. First of all, you ought to go go read the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus speaking to the people on the Sermon on the Mount, when he's speaking about fasting, some of you will know this. He doesn't say, if you fast. You know what he says? When you fast, right? So there's this clear command in Scripture. We ought to be fasting on some sort of a regular basis. But here are four things you can do if you've never fasted, want to think a little bit more about it. The first thing is, is pray about it. Number one, it shouldn't be something you just kind of decide to do last minute because you, you know, thought about it and never really prayed about it, and then I'll just give it a try. It ought to be something you go into with prayer. Lord, I'm going to pray about this. I'm leading up to this, Father. I think this is something I ought to be doing. I've never done it before, but I want to pray through it, try to seek your will on it, try to understand it more. Pray about it. Number two, study the Bible about it. Like, understand it. What does Scripture actually teach about fasting? There are all sorts of examples in the Old Testament, I've already said, in the New Testament that help us understand fasting, that teach us more time about, more about fasting, what it means, why we do it. Thirdly, set aside a time to fast. Right? This is the important thing about fasting. The, the reason you fast, you say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to eat a meal or two or three or four, however the Lord leads you. I'm not going to eat a meal so that I can spend that time with the Lord in prayer and in study and in understanding him more. Right? You, don't, you don't fast so you can get on your smartphone and check Facebook for an hour instead of eating. You got it? I know y'all get on your smartphone and check while you're eating, but you need to put that away when you're fasting, right? I'm not going to eat, and instead of the hour I take for lunch, whatever it looks like for you, I'm going to go somewhere alone. I'm going to pray. I'm going to study my Bible. I'm going to grow in my faith. And then the fourth thing, start slow. I think sometimes we, we get kind of, overzealous and we decide I'm going to fast for three days and we wonder why we can't do it. Right, start at one meal. Like, Lord, I'm willingly going to give up lunch or supper or breakfast or whatever it looks like for you. I'm going to give that one meal up so that I can pray and study and understand you more. Now, this is, I could talk about this portion of it for an hour. I don't have time this morning. But one of the interesting things about fasting is it's hard for us. It's hard for us. 
and, and just, a, just, and just, a, small little, uh, just a, a small little portion of our lives, if we fast, it gives us just a small little taste of suffering. Just a little. Just a little. And that small taste of suffering reminds us of the suffering of Christ. You, you make that spiritual connection there. Lord, I'm willing to suffer just a little. I'm just giving up one meal. Some of us could stand to give up five or six meals, right? I'm just giving up one meal. But when I do it, I'm going to suffer a little bit. It's going to remind me, Christ, of your suffering. But I'm going to do it. This is the teaching here. I'm going to do it with joy. I'm going to celebrate the opportunity you've given me, Christ. I want to grow in my faith through fasting. I want to do it as a blessing. I want to do it to learn more about you, to grow in my time with you, to spend time in prayer. I'm not going to do it simply because it's rote and I have to do it because somebody told me to do it. I'm going to do it because I want to do it. This old versus new comparison is going to rile up the Pharisees. They're not happy about this. They're not going to like it. So look what happens in verse 21. Jesus gives another example. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now pause for a second because I feel like in our generation I need to explain this just for a second. Verse 21. So anybody under the age of about 35, believe it or not, there used to be a time where if you had a hole in your jeans, you bought a patch to cover the hole. How many remember that, honestly? You put a patch on your jeans. Okay, good. <laughs> now we buy jeans with holes already in them, right? That's a style. So, so this, honestly, I, as I read through this, I thought, I may need to explain this because nobody puts a patch on old. There used to be a time where we patched up the old. Jesus says, listen, when you, and, and you know like I do, the patch only lasted a certain amount of time, right? We used to put patches on our, you know, our jeans. Mama would put the patches on because we were outside and made a big mess and ripped holes and put the patches on, and a week later the patches were torn off. Right? You can't put old versus new because the worst tears made. Verse 22 gives another example. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's this idea of connecting old versus new. Jesus says, listen, we don't put new things on old things. We think about the new and we embrace the new. Jesus says to these people, listen, I am the new. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, this is what Jesus says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Listen to this. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, that, that verse speaks to salvation, first of all, right? You, you accept Christ, the old life, the sinful life. You've put that away. You are now loving Christ and, and, and following him in salvation. You've put away the old life. You're now walking in newness of life or experiencing new life. By the way, that's what we say when somebody is baptized, buried in the likeness of death, raised to experience new life. It's all about the newness of Christ. So we see that in salvation, but here's another way we ought to see it. It, it. We need to be mindful of this, especially in the modern church. It's very easy for us to get in a rut, isn't it? And, and to do the things we've always done just because we've always done them. Like We need to open our eyes to see that Christ is new. And we always ought to be willing. I want to be clear about this. We, already, we always should be willing as a church body, as, as believers to look for new and fresh ways to reach people for Christ, to impact the kingdom of the Lord. Now, we have to be careful here, right? The, the message, listen to what I'm saying now, the message does not change, ever. 
Like my commitment to you as your pastor is I'm always going to stand up here. I'm going to open God's word. We're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at verses. We're going to walk through verses because this is God's word. That's my calling to teach and preach God's word. That's the message. We don't change the message from the preschoolers, by the way, all the way through our students into all of our adult Sunday school classes. We're going to teach the word of God. That's the message. We're not changing that. But the methods do change. And one of the things I love about this church is we've always been willing to embrace the new and, and, and look at new ways. Like, what are we doing in our society to reach people for Christ? We have conversations as a team on a, on a pretty regular basis. Like, what are new ways we can reach people? What are some new ideas, right? And so I, I would just encourage you and challenge you based on this teaching. Like, what are we doing in our lives that's new for the sake of the kingdom of Christ? Like, what new methods are you employing to reach people for Christ? That's a question you could ask. What new methods are you using to, to impact the kingdom of the Lord? Because if you just do it the way you've always done it, you're going to get the results you've always gotten, right? Jesus says, listen, I'm new, I'm fresh. I want you to kind of understand the old, of course, set it aside, think about the new. What are we doing to reach people for Christ? Jesus says, listen, I'm not doing away with the law. I'm fulfilling it. I'm showing you how to live out the law with grace and with mercy and with love. That's our calling in the world. Now, let's continue. Look at verse 23. Now, again, it's about old and new. It's fasting, and now we're going to see Sabbath underlying all this, as we're going to see in the beginning of chapter 3. Underlying this is the problem the Pharisees have with Jesus ushering in the new kingdom. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath now. He, this is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. They're just pulling off heads of grain and eating as they walk through the grain field. Verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not, law not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priests to eat. He also gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, this is important, verse 27, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's the second truth I want you to see. Jesus now teaches a new way to understand the Sabbath. Right, he's ushering in a new kingdom. He, he shows us a new way to think about fasting, the idea of excitement and joy and celebration. Now he's speaking of a new way to understand the Sabbath. Because what we see in this text is that the religious leaders are viewing the Sabbath from an Old Testament legalism law standpoint. Right? There are certain rules. There are certain requirements. We have to keep the letter of the law. And so they question him in verse 24. They say, look, what are they doing? Excuse me, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, I want to give you just, just for a second, I want you to kind of make sure you understand where this is coming from. The Sabbath isn't something just made up in the first century. The Sabbath isn't just made up in the teachings of the New Testament. In fact, the Sabbath goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. So let's just make this connection for you. Genesis chapter 2, you don't have to look it up. I, I just want you to listen. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. Now fast forward to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment says this, Remember the Sabbath day, 
keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now here's the problem. In the first century, the Jewish people and the scribes and the Pharisees had made the Sabbath day so legalistic that they come up with this long set of rules. Long set of rules of things you could do, things you could not do. So let me just read, according to the earliest Jewish writings, this is one writer said this, there were 39 classes of work, now listen to this, 39 classes of work that profaned the Sabbath, including, here's the list, what we might expect, such as plowing, hunting, butchering, and those we would not, such as, these things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, tying or loosening knots, couldn't do that, sewing more than one stitch, So the first stitch is good, after that you're in trouble, or writing more than one letter. And the list just goes on and on, right? Here's the problem. They had made it so legalistic, they had forgotten that God created it for us as a time to rest. That's what Jesus says in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath day was created as a day for us to worship the Lord and rest. Now, some of y'all are old enough to remember this, but how many of you remember on Sundays, everything used to close down? Anybody remember those days? A few of you? Yeah, I mean, everything. Right, the idea of like choosing where you're going to go to lunch after church on Sunday didn't happen. You went home for lunch. Like my dad used to tell me in Noonan, he grew up in Noonan when he was young, on Wednesdays at noon, everything closed down. Same sort of idea, right? We will open up the time for people to go to church if they want to. We're going to close everything down on the Sabbath. We, we know things have changed. So it's a little bit of a challenge for us in our modern world to keep the Sabbath. It's a little bit of a challenge because there's so many opportunities. So I'm going to give you five ways, and we'll have them on the screen, five ways that you can keep the Sabbath in modern times, okay? This is not an exhaustive list. It's just to kind of get your mind thinking in the right direction. The first one is to worship together with other believers in church. Right? God created the Sabbath as a day of rest and a day of worship. So I would say to you, listen, I, I want to be very clear because the whole point of this teaching is we're living in grace, not in law. But I would say to you, attendance matters. Now, I'm, not, I'm not walking around checking little stars and see how many times you're here. But if you say to me, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm here one out of every four Sundays, you're not keeping the Sabbath. Because one of the things Scripture commands is if we should not give up the assembling together of believers. You should, on a regular basis, assemble yourself with other believers so you can worship. Here's the second thing we ought to be doing. We ought to find joy in the things of the Lord on Sunday. You should do it every day. You should do it as part of your normal work week and as part of your life. But we should find, especially on Sunday, joy in the things of the Lord. God has set aside this one day for us to rest, for us to worship, for us to seek Him and trust Him. Here's the third thing. We need to rest. That may be the most difficult one we understand and read in our modern society. Because if you're like me, and I'll just speak for myself, I can't speak for you, but sometimes I feel like Sunday's a day to catch up. You ever feel like that? 
like I'm behind, I didn't get this done, it's due this week, or I've got to do it Monday. I'm just going to spend a couple hours Sunday afternoon working. Look, and I'm not saying to you it's wrong every single time to work. I know sometimes the, the ox is in the ditch, so to speak, and you've got to get it out, and there are times you've got to work. But regularly, by and large, Sunday should be a day of rest where you stop working, instead focus on the things of the Lord, on His glory, on His blessings. Number four, spend time with family and friends. You ought to use that opportunity as a family to be together. If you have close friends, spend time with those people. Just an opportunity for you just to kind of enjoy fellowship. And then number five, and I put this in there. This is something I'm just kind of passionate about. Be intentional in teaching your family about the importance of the Sabbath. Right? Parents should always be teaching their children. It's our responsibility. Like it's not my responsibility to teach your kids. It's not your responsibility to teach my kids. We're kind of in this together, and I want to help, and I want you to help, and I want you to influence my kids, and I, I get that. But ultimately, it's my responsibility what I teach my kids. It's your responsibility. And so I just encourage you, be, be intentional in the way you teach your family, especially about the importance of the Sabbath. Okay, we got to finish up. Mark chapter 3. Now, remember, we're seeing old versus new. We're seeing Christ ushering in a new kingdom. We're seeing leaders of the law, Pharisees, Sadducees especially, unhappy what Jesus is doing. This is going to come to a head now at the beginning of Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He says, again, he entered the synagogue. This is Jesus. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, right? The Pharisees are watching Jesus now. They're following him around. There's a guy with a withered hand. They're watching to see if he's actually going to heal this guy on the Sabbath, verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now watch this. Jesus is going to kind of cut him off at the pass. He's not going to give them a chance to complain, verse 4. He said to them, he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now watch this verse 6. If you're taking notes, underline verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Truth number three. The new kingdom of Christ led the religious leaders to plot his death. They couldn't deal with the new way of doing things. They couldn't deal with the new teaching. They were so caught up in the old they were so caught up in the legalism. They were so, so caught up in the way they used to do it. They couldn't see the forest for the trees in the phrase we would use today. Now, I, I want to be careful here because I want you to kind of understand. We should always kind of think through and, and apply this to our lives. And the question we ought to be asking ourselves on, on a regular basis is, listen, am I so caught up in the way I used to do things that I'm not willing to see the new and fresh things that Christ has given me today? See, the Pharisees couldn't do that. And so we see kind of five different examples. I'm not going to read them to you, but in case you're taking notes, this kind of stuff is interesting to me. Like when I read through this, I'll, in my Bible, I'll mark like one, two, three, four, five. This is the fifth time now in the first three chapters that the Pharisees have questioned Jesus. The, I'm not going to read them, but the first one is in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. We've seen that. The second one, Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Then again in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Fourth one is in Mark chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. And then finally, Mark chapter 6, 
They've questioned him, they've questioned him, they've questioned him. Now they're going to go out, they're going to hold counsel together how they can destroy him. Now here's what I want you to understand. We're winding down. Here's what I want you to get. The Son of God, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the author and the perfecter of our faith has walked this earth. All he's done is healed people, preached truth, encouraged people, challenged people to walk and to follow him. He's lived a life so far of of just doing incredible things, healing, miraculous life. And these people get so caught up in the fact that he doesn't do it by the letter of the law the way they think he ought to do it. They can't see all the good he's doing, and so they want to crucify him. Here's what we need to understand. This This is important for us. Anytime the Lord is at work doing great things, the enemy's going to attack, always. He's done it throughout Scripture. He's done it throughout history. Every opportunity, every chance when the Lord does something incredible, the enemy's going to attack. We, we, see, we, saw, we saw it in our study of Acts time and time and time again. And so the challenge for us in a, in a church like this that's growing and reaching people and serious about sending people out into the world, whether it's across the, the street to the cubicle next door or to the lunchroom table that sit with a kid that nobody else sits with, or it means getting on an airplane and flying around the world. When we send people out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we're serious about doing that, the enemy's going to attack us. And so like as, as individual believers and as a collective church, we ought to be praying against the attacks of the enemy. We ought, we ought to be mindful of what the Lord is doing, of how the Lord is working. We, we need to be seeking new ways, seeking new opportunities of ministry, seeking new ways in which we can impact the kingdom of Christ for his honor, for his glory. Because as we continue to work, as we continue to grow, as we continue to sin, the enemy is going to attack. The enemy is going to do everything he can to defeat us. He wants us to not see the new. He doesn't want us to understand the fresh things that Christ is doing. He wants us to get mired in the past and angry and upset. And instead, Jesus says, listen, I've come to give you life and to give it abundantly. You are a new creature. You are a new creation. What are we doing that's fresh and that's new and that's exciting to reach the world for Christ? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching in Mark, Father, for just the real comparison of of old versus new, Lord, of, of the challenge of understanding the past, Lord, but looking for fresh ways of ministry. Lord, we thank you that Christ loved and and showed grace and and just gave us an example of how we should live, Father. Help us just to open our eyes to that truth of what you would do through us, of how you would use us, of of not getting stuck in in a rut of doing things the way we've always done them, but instead looking for new and fresh ways, exciting ways to share the gospel, to reach people with the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the ability to hear from you, to speak to the world, Father, with fresh eyes and with a fresh voice. And I pray, Lord, you would use us to do great things for the sake of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. Altar is open. An opportunity for you to respond. You come as we sing together this morning. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.